Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my friend Patrick Curran, who has allowed way too many degrees of freedom, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we discuss the many places where researchers make decisions throughout the research process, and we weigh the pros and cons of those researchers having such decision-making freedom. Along the way, we also mention Lucky Charms, Frozen Waffles for Dinner, The Fifth Down, Forking Paths, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, Sharks in the Water, The Dutch, Bad Actors, The Cyril Burt Fan Club, Three Ball Corner Pocket, Russia's High Priests, Petulant Teenagers, Autopilot, Cat Rodeos, and The Researcher Notebook. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Now, last time we recorded, Mm -hmm. you were single parenting because Goldie (laughs) was out of town. And you began the day walking your yard in the pouring rain with a headlamp mining poop. Dog poop. Can we please be clear on that? Fair enough. Most of it was dog poop. Uh (laughs) Has Goldie returned and helped right the ship? She has. I'm back to being careful about how I parent. I have been at your house when you've been there alone, and I've been at your house when Goldie has been there. I do not see a significant difference between (laughs) the two. So here's the thing. Goldie and I have entirely different parenting frames of reference. She was raised in a two-parent household, and I was raised in a one-parent household by a single dad. Dad just was trying to keep things together, and he had two boys. Sometimes parenting was not exactly top of the list. (laughs) I'll give you an example. A typical weekend day, Saturday morning, let's say, I would start my day by taking an entire box of either Lucky Charms or Captain Crunch. I would fill a giant mixing bowl, go plop myself down in front of cartoons, and over the course of the day, probably watch six hours of TV, And throughout the day, I would consume six to eight sugared sodas. We just did whatever we want. I mean, it was wake up, run with scissors. That's what we're doing today. (laughs) When I use that as my frame of reference, I think I'm doing a pretty damn good job. It's all about baselines, isn't it? Absolutely. If your kid only eats half a box of Captain (laughs) Crunch. It's a win. That's a win. (laughs) So I was raised in a two-parent family. And we were very close. I had an older sister, younger brother, and mom and dad. But especially for the 1970s, I had the odd situation where my mom was the major breadwinner. Mm. She was a writer, and she would go on business trips. And when she was away, dad would be the captain of the Mm -hmm. ship, which was not the case when mom was home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We had lots of frozen waffles for dinner. (laughs) To this day, one of my favorite meals on the face of the planet is take a saltine cracker, spread Mm -hmm. it with tomato paste, salt it and put cheese on it and toast it. And that was our favorite dinner was cracker pizza night. Was this the depression? (laughs) But what's funny is what you alluded to earlier about how that impacts your current parenting. It turns out my wife and I, this is a shocker, have slightly different views on the parenting process. What? It comes up on a near daily basis. 90% of the time, we have this nice yin and yang thing going Mm -hmm. where we compliment one another. But every now and then, an enemy aircraft gets in under the radar. (laughs) Oh, dude, we could Hmm? do a pop 
book entitled Parental Degrees of Freedom. <laughs> I have to tell you, I had a little PTSD reaction when you used the word pop, because I, th- I thought you were going to all of a sudden pop quiz me again. I started sweating a little bit. Okay, a pop book on parental degrees of freedom. Because we are up to our eyeballs in researcher degrees of freedom right now, mm. which I have to admit, not coincidentally, is the topic of what we're going to discuss today. Did you see how I did that? Nice. What we want to talk about today is researcher degrees of freedom. Why I want to puzzle through this as a topic is you and I were foolish enough to agree to teach a factor analysis class together. Mm-hmm. We were talking about principal components analysis and principal axis factoring and maximum likelihood, common factor model and determining the number of factors to extract, looking at factor loadings to identify potentially poor items Mm -hmm. where you might drop an item and rerun the factor model. And we got a wonderful question that both you and I kind of stared blankly at the screen where a young woman said, how can you do what you're teaching us when it is unethical? (laughs) Wow. That's such strong language, right? It is such strong language, and she meant it in every Mm -hmm. spirit of the term. She wasn't accusing us of that. Mm. Mm. We kind of paused and then asked for clarification, and she started down the party line of... This is why we have the replication crisis. You're making decisions based on the characteristics of your data. This is unethical research practice that are opportunistically giving you effects. Mm -hmm. And we should not be using any aspect of what you're describing here. It just made me think that we need to talk about what is the issue, what are researcher degrees of freedom, and then to give away part of the punchline of where we're going, is there an interstitial region where not only is it ethical to examine your data and consider Mm -hmm. characteristics of that with respect to your conclusions and results, but also could you make an argument that it is unethical to not examine the characteristics of your data prior to presenting the results to a broader audience. So that's the entry point. All right. So are you going to start us off? Nah, I'm not. I'm (laughs) going to refill my coffee. Why don't you tell us what are researcher degrees of freedom and why are they incredibly important to pay attention to in our current research endeavors. Yeah, well, you just described about 40 minutes of what we're going to talk about. So maybe I'll provide an overview. Researcher degrees of freedom are things that even if you don't know it by that term, you understand it as a practicing researcher. And these are the decisions that you make over and over and over as you are engaging, even in just a single analysis. If you think about asking yourself questions while you are gathering data and you ask yourself something like, should I gather more data? Is it okay? Can I just stop gathering the data right now? I don't know. How, what do the data look like so far? Right? That is some degree of freedom that you as a researcher exercise, which may or may not have consequences. You might do things like, oh my gosh, I've got some cases that look like they're kind of outlying. What should I do about those? Should I toss them? Should I keep them in? Hmm, that is a researcher degree of freedom. You might examine the distribution of one of your variables and go, holy cow, look at that. It is so skewed. What am I going to do about that? Should I transform it? Should I not transform it? This is a researcher degree of freedom. It may well impact your outcome. You might have a 
ton of peripheral variables that you gathered as part of a study. And you might say, ah, should I control for that variable? Should I not control for that variable? Should I split on that variable? Should I not? These are all examples of places in the course of a study. And there are many, many more examples where you exercise judgment and that judgment may have consequences. Those are researcher degrees of freedom. Nicely done. You can't (laughs) do that when the 90-second clock is running, can you? We talk about Cobra Kai and (laughs) and Christmas shorthands. Dude, I still can't get past that. That was like the worst clock management that I've seen since the University of Colorado's fifth down against the University of Missouri. Nice reference. Yeah, for you old people out there, you will remember that. Mm -hmm. University of Colorado was on the goal line, and to stop the clock, they spiked the ball, except it was fourth down. Oops. And nobody noticed, and they ran a fifth down. (laughs) And scored and won. The final score, CU 33, Missouri 31. Colorado's won the game. Yeah, something's funky here. Did they give them an extra down? Your chi-square response was the University of Colorado's fifth down. I won the game is what you're saying. Yep, with an asterisk. Okay. There are three words that I often see used when talking about this. Two of them I'm on board, and three I agree with, but there's a judgment valence that sometimes worries me. If we think about subjective, we are looking at the data. We're using our experience. We're using our eyeball. Does it look like an outlier? Does that seem to be nonlinear? Mm-hmm. So there's a subjectivity. I do agree with the arbitrariness of it. A term that I stole from Bauer and try to use in my own work is something principled, right? Are you following a set of criteria? And Mm -hmm. often researcher degrees of freedom are not. They are arbitrary. Maybe you apply them here, but you don't apply them there. Maybe something is an outlier in one application, but you wouldn't think is an outlier in another application. So there's an arbitrariness. But then the one that I start to get a little less comfortable with is they're opportunistic. And this is a big part of what we're going to talk about. And that is, oh, if I drop this case, my predictor becomes significant. So there's an opportunity gain in that. I'm not saying they're not opportunistic. One thing, and again, we're going to repeat this throughout the conversation, is we absolutely support the concerns that have been expressed about researcher degrees of freedom and the inappropriate use of those in practice. But not all researcher degrees of freedom are done in order to find a significant effect or to get a bigger effect size or whatever that may be. Why have we thought about these more recently goes back to our wonderful conversation with Samantha Anderson from Arizona State University last year. If you haven't listened to that episode, we would highly recommend. Samantha is crazy smart and is one of the thought leaders in thinking about the complexities of the replication crisis. Mm -hmm. In our conversation, she had that wonderful term that she would think of it more as the replication dilemma. And I loved that term as opposed to the crisis. One of the leading hypotheses for the replication crisis are researcher degrees of freedom. If you have an individual who is doing what Greg talked about, you examine the distributions of your data, you look at potential cases that for some reason you don't like, you include a predictor that's significant but exclude a predictor that's not, all sorts of things can happen. You begin to bias your results. 
you get inflated type 1 error rates. You get inflated effect size estimates. You directly undermine replication. One way I like to think about it that has been written about, um, for example, like Gelman and Loken talk about the garden of forking paths, which is just fun to say, forking paths. Imagine that as you're going through the research process at any one of those kinds of decision points, you could go either way. So you are deciding as you're doing a study, do I gather more data or do I stop now? Okay, that leads to these two different universes. And when you are about to analyze the data and you're going through and cleaning the data or getting to know your data, you make decisions about outliers. Do I toss those cases? Do I not toss those cases? Well, my tree just branched again. Do I transform the data? Do I not transform the data? Well, my tree just branched again. And you go through all of these decisions that you have to make, some of which you might not even realize. And it leads in the end to this tremendous number of different universes, right? These different paths that you could have traveled. It's sometimes even referred to as the multiverse within research. Learning of an infinite multiverse includes learning of infinite dangers. And so the question is, how do you make those decisions? Where do you wind up? And each one of those decisions, it's not necessarily some nefarious thing, right? It feels like, and it's talked about as though this whole thing is just littered with dirty deeds done dirt cheap. At every opportunity, right? That you are trying to make the decisions to get you to a place where you can say, woohoo! I found the thing that I wanted to find. And that's not necessarily the case at all. But in the end, there are all of these different possibilities that could have arisen based on the decisions that you are making throughout this process. There's a wonderful paper that predated all of the discussion about replication crisis and researcher degrees of freedom, but it's back in the 80s. But Robert McCallum, he started with a population structural equation model and stripped out structural paths, and then he would rebuild the model just following modification indices one at a time. In precisely 0% of the cases did he ever get back. (laughs) to the population model. (laughs) And it really was exactly what you described because when you make one decision, that then determines your next decision, that then determines your next decision and you never get back to where you started from. Do you mind briefly if I characterize an entire country? Oh, by all means, please. The Dutch. Oh, the Dutch. Welcome in Nederland. They are taking over the psychometrics quant methods world. I got to tell you guys, I don't know if it's something in the water. I don't know if it's 40% is below sea level, as we learned from Ethan or William of Orange or whatever. Oh my gosh, some of the best quantitative methods work is coming out of the low countries. A lot of really good work has been presented on these topics, and so if we're omitting a name, that doesn't mean anything at all. But some recent work, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing, I'm a Colorado boy with Irish roots, Weikert's, oh gosh, C-O-O-S-J-E, Kuzja, Veldkamp, August Stein, oh, I should not have gone down. The authors are Jelte Wichertz, Koosje Veldkamp, Hilde Augustijn, Marianne Bakker, Robbie van Aert en Marcel van Assen. Onwetende Amerikaan. 
I'm looking at a paper, 2016 Frontiers in Psychology, Degrees of Freedom in Planning, Running, Analyzing, and Reporting Psychological Studies, a checklist to avoid p-hacking. They identify 34 individual types of researcher degrees of freedom. (laughs) And it's a really wonderful paper. They lay out what are the researcher degrees of freedom that we should pay attention to, how might they manifest themselves in a given study, and importantly, how do we move forward in trying to incorporate these in into our future as a science. There's a really nice paper by Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson that uses the catchy title, False Positive Psychology. And the idea here is that when you are making all of these kinds of decisions, it can lead you in the end to false positives, right? You get statistical significance in the end, which of course we know shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be truth. But the chance when you make all of these decisions, potentially, not always, potentially with that end result in mind, then the chance that there's going to be a false positive, the chance that there's going to be a type one error can be severely elevated. And so when you talk about the paper that you're referring to right now, in articulating all of those different researcher degrees of freedom, it's with an eye toward helping people to keep from winding up in these situations where they might be proclaiming the existence of a relation, the existence of an effect, when in fact there isn't one there. And everything that Greg just said has been supported in the literature. If you look at a 20 by 20 correlation matrix and pick your dependent variable is the one that has the <laughs> biggest correlations with your prediction, you are going to overestimate your effects. Mm-hmm. If you only include the predictors that are significant and drop the predictors that are not significant, you are going to overestimate your effects. It goes to that third term that I raised mm-hmm. earlier that worries me a little bit is that opportunistic. Mm. Because now we start mixing, are there bad people or are there good people <laughs> who do bad things? It is equally indisputably well-known that all of us in academics are under tremendous pressure to produce, Mm -hmm. to publish, to get grants, to do all of the things that go into our 10-year review packet, Mm -hmm. that go into our end-of-year report to the granting agency to get our next year of funding. There is a shark in the water that you always know is there, gosh, if I drop these two outliers, my primary predictor moves from 0.07 to 0.04, and I'm going to be able to get that published. And I really need that because my tenure review is coming up in six months. There is no question those forces exist on all of us. Absolutely. And we could probably talk at length about, oh, the system needs to be revisited and we need more open publishing. We could have very broad discussions about those kinds of things. People have many forces that are acting on them and they're just human beings. The other thing, though, is that from the very moment that you are planning a study, you are planning that study to find something that you believe is there. And I know this because I work with people who are planning studies. I help them plan studies. We go through the charade of power analysis, sample size determination. And part of the conversation is not, how many subjects would I need if my effect size is zero? (laughs) That's that's not part of the conversation, right? The conversation is, you know, how many subjects would I need for a given effect size? So there is a belief that there is something there. And as people go through this 
garden of forking paths, making these kinds of decisions, their motivation might be tenure, might not be tenure, might be publication, might not be publication. Their motivation can also be a very well-intentioned belief in the efficacy of a treatment or the relation among variables, and that by the time they have gone through, thrown out those outliers, transformed those distributions, and in the end, when that p-value goes from 0.07 down to 0.03, they're like, see, there it is. I knew it was there. It's not like, <laughs> I got significance. <laughs> So I think a lot of the things that people do come from their heart, which is less nefarious, I would say, but no less driving of these kinds of decisions. That's exactly right. Are there bad actors out there? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are bad actors who fake data, the Cyril Burt fan club <laughs> of the world. All right, we're not talking about that here. Because I got to tell you, is no pre-registration on the face of the planet is going to stop me from being a bad actor. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here is the need to put up guardrails on everything that Greg has been describing, these subjective and arbitrary, and I agree with opportunistic, not necessarily nefarious, but mm -hmm. opportunistic motivations that would lead us to identify a particular effect. And I really like how you put it, Greg, where your heart and soul is in these belief structures. And yes, mm -hmm. we are cold-hearted scientists. <laughs> At least that's what Dr. Michelle has told Greg and me. <laughs> But all of us have a dog in the fight. We have a belief system. We have a theory. We have predictions. We're not these heartless adjudicators of raw data. Maybe we should be, mm -hmm. but we're not. Ptolemy believed the earth was in the middle, and Copernicus believed the sun was in the middle. And you approach your data with that lens and that perspective. Mm -hmm. So a key strategy that has been recommended to protect against researcher degrees of freedom whether they be arbitrary, whether they be opportunistic, mm -hmm. is pre-registration. Mm. I like a lot of aspects of that. Is That's kind of calling your shot in pool, right? When you were an undergrad <laughs> and you would go to the beer bars, right? This is dating myself because when I was an undergrad, drinking age was 18. And so you go and you had to call your shot in pool or it didn't count. It actually counted as a scratch because uh -huh. otherwise it's garbage. It's a garbage shot if you didn't call it. So pre-registration is the equivalent of 1983 drinking a pitcher of Coors Light <laughs> and saying three ball corner pocket. Before you gather the data, you pre-register what your hypotheses are, what your predictions are. Some call for even pre-registering your syntax. <laughs> I have concerns about, Sorry, but... I can't not laugh on that one. I just can't we'll not laugh. We'll talk about that one later. Uh -huh. It takes ostensibly those researcher degrees of freedom out of the hands of the researchers. Mm -hmm. If you call your shot, you're no longer allowed to do these things. So one of the big guardrails in trying to protect the field against inappropriate use of researcher degrees of freedom is pre-registration. Yeah, I have a lot of reactions to pre-registration. And the first, of course, is that it's very, very well-intentioned. 
right? It wants to try to create a more common set of guidelines, keep people from wandering around, and maybe making decisions that are driven by other motivations. There's still a ton of challenges with it, and it doesn't take a lot to chuckle at the idea of pre-registering your syntax. Do I have to pre-register my error messages as well? Because I'm going to get them, right? I'm going to get them even if my syntax is flawless. Things happen with the data themselves, right? With regard to your syntax, you can get empirical issues that cause challenges with your syntax. And I encountered this when I was working with some people. We went through the process of simulating a data set so that we could get the code just so. And when the real data came in, the syntax that worked beautifully on data that were simulated had all kinds of issues when we were encountering real variables in the wild. I chuckle at the idea of pre-registering syntax as being anything that anyone could take really seriously. But one of the main problems that I have with pre-registration is imagine that I pre-register how I am going to make a decision as to whether or not I am going to gather more data. I pre-register how I am going to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to toss outliers. All right, anything more than three standard deviations away, they go, okay, good, I pre-registered that. I'm going to make a decision about the distributional shapes of that. Oh, anything with skew more than two, I am going to transform. Okay, there, I pre-registered that. Once I lay out all of these potential decisions, it doesn't keep me from making these decisions, right? So in the end, I get my data and I might veer left due to the skew or I might not veer left. I might veer left due to the outliers or I might not veer left. In the end, there's still this multiverse of possibilities. And the fact that I have articulated my decision structure ahead of time doesn't keep me from traversing this particular thing. It might keep some of my motivations out of the picture, but you know what? There's still this multiverse of possibilities that could arise. And guess what? If I get a different sample, a different sample, a different sample, even though I've pre-registered all of these choices, I may damn well wind up in very, very different places. It makes you start to question, what am I controlling for? Is my sole objective to control for those naughty, naughty researchers who are spoiling it for us all? Because in the end, it doesn't actually change the fact that there are going to be a multitude of possibilities, a multitude of opportunities for type 1 errors to arise. There have been a number of discussions about things that we can do to try to deal with this problem of having all of these possible outcomes that could arise, even from a very tight decision structure that you have laid out a priori. So one angle that people have taken to try to talk about this multiverse of possibilities is making adjustments to our alpha level. That's not surprising. Another is to do some version of a sensitivity analysis where we say, okay, well, yes, it's true. With another sample, we could have made this other decision. Or what if we didn't make this decision at all? What if we decided to keep those points that otherwise might seem like outliers? What if we decided not to transform our data? What if we decided not to collapse those conditions, etc.? So you could imagine, in theory anyway, going down all of those roads and getting the result that you have in the end, and then looking at them and saying, see, my conclusion would have been robust to the vast majority of these possibilities. So I like that in principle, except for the small detail that a lot of those forks are just dumb, right? If you have points that every fiber of your theoretical being says are out 
outliers, then for God's sake, why would you include in the comparison something that keeps cases that clearly are not part of the population to which you wish to generalize? And so forth and so forth and so forth. So one of the challenges with a sensitivity analysis approach is that you're almost giving equal weight to the dumb paths that you could take. And I don't like that at all. So then we come back to this issue of pre-registration And in addition to the challenges I think you face with the multiverse still existing, whether you have pre-registered all of those choices or not, the concern is whether or not we should be taking human judgment out of the equation. And I think that's the most important factor in all of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Something that has long worried me about the replication crisis and the conversations about researcher degrees of freedom and pre-registration is that the researcher can't be trusted. There are bad people doing bad things for self-serving reasons, and we need to stop them. You know, I was born and raised by Rush, and all I can think of are the high priests in 2112 Mm. at the end of the album. I feel like there's this, we've got to stop these bad people from doing bad things. And that's where I start feeling really uncomfortable. I am the first in line to admit that all of us are under pressures to produce, to find significant findings. No matter what we say, we still look at a P of 045 differently than a P of 055. That even though journals will say that we will accept non-significant findings, that doesn't tend to happen very often. I agree with all of that. But the notion that researchers, by and large, are naughty children who need to be better parented starts making me feel very uncomfortable. It is not a freedom of choice issue necessarily, right? It's who are you to tell me how to do my research, right? All of us are petulant teenagers (laughs) on some level or another. Some of us more than others. (laughs) But the other is the pilot knows their aircraft and they know how to fly it. They have many years of experience flying it and you cannot pre-register every contingency that's going to happen during a flight. And you have to trust the pilot that when presented with an unexpected scenario that they are able in the moment to make the right decision. Excuse me, sir. There's been a little problem in the cockpit. The cockpit? What is it? It's the little room in the front of the plane where the pilots sit. That's not important right now. In fact, I would imagine it's rare that a flight doesn't contain some place where it requires the judgment of those who are operating the plane. That's right. Your dad was an engineer for Boeing, Mm -hmm. and you texted me that great picture of how to fly your new 737 (laughs) from like 1968. It was great. It's like the owner's manual you find in the glove box. Uh It's really interesting. Philosophically, Boeing and Airbus have different motivations for how they design their aircraft. So Boeing Hmm. is based in the United States. Airbus is a European consortium. Boeing has a foundational philosophy that you trust the pilot and provide computer guidance to support the pilot. Hmm. Airbus has a guiding philosophy that a computer can make more decisions more quickly 
than a human being can. Mm -hmm. And the pilot augments the computer guidance, the Airbus family (laughs) of aircraft, the A320, 30, 40, 50, 80. They prioritize automation because it is unambiguously true that a computer can make a thousand flight adjustments in a second. When a pilot is trying to get his cup of coffee back in the holder before they re-grab the steering wheel or whatever it is in an airplane. I don't think they call it a steering wheel. It's interesting to think about where do you put your emphasis? Do you put it on the individual or do you put it on the system? Airbus makes some of the finest planes that exists on the face of the planet today. They just have a different philosophy. I think it's just critically important to remember that the researcher is the expert. And to take that out of their hands is the long con that we do all research just computer programmed, right? Do we even need the research? If everything is pre-registered, we have the Mm -hmm. data submitted. This worries me. Yeah, it worries me too. And again, it's because I can't imagine a flight. And by flight, I now mean a research endeavor that I've been attached to where there haven't been so many judgments that had to be made along the way that I couldn't possibly have anticipated all of them, right? Whether it's a weird case that doesn't meet the definitions of outlier and yet that case for other reasons really doesn't belong in that sample or you get some weird thing where one kid in your class or a couple kids in your class were held back and have the same teacher or repeating a great... I mean, all of these things that you encounter in the real world. What are you going to do about that? I had a student recently. She needed to take a makeup quiz because she is homesick. She said, okay, how about this? I will have my camera on showing my desktop and I will take pictures with my cell phone showing you my whole layout. And she laid out this entire set up. And I said, why are you doing that? And she said, well, just so you know that I'm not going to cheat. And I said, well, I have another option. I could trust you. And there was this huge pause. And I said, look, I'm not operating from a framework where the baseline is that you are going to be dishonest. Guess what? Cheater's going to cheat. People who want to cheat the system, whether it's pre-registered or not, will find ways to do it. They can pre-register until the cows come home, but then they can make up data in the end and populate it with things that nudge their results in the direction that they want. Cheater's going to cheat. So I said, no, just (laughs) take your quiz and send it back to me when you're done. So this isn't about me being uncomfortable handing over the plane to an autopilot. This is me genuinely believing that the best interests of the study remain in the hands of the investigators. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Because I agree wholeheartedly. This underlying theme that researchers behave poorly and we need to catch them. It's almost like the internal affairs division in a police department. Please go away. I don't want to answer any more of your questions. We're sorry to bother you at a time like this, Mrs. Twice. We would have come earlier, but your husband wasn't dead then. (laughs) Let's take a step back just momentarily about the trust issue, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. One of the other worries that I have about the pre-registration and the researcher degree of freedom guardrails, it is often presented and discussed in a way that it applies to all research studies. Mm -hmm. This is what we need to do in the social sciences or whatever area it is you're going to define. So I'm working with a buddy of mine who's doing a school-based intervention. He has randomization to school. So they 
they literally have multiple schools that are in a treatment condition, multiple schools that are in a control condition. They have repeated measures nested within kids, kids nested within grades, grades nested within schools. They follow them over time, and the kids have the audacity to change classes every year because, (laughs) well, they go from second grade to third grade. Uh (laughs) Think about that design. What are you even going to pre-register? This is not dissimilar to our conversation a couple of years ago on power is the power of what? Exactly. What are you going to pre-register in a design like that? I mean, you can have some 30,000 foot, we believe on average children in the treatment schools will display greater social skills than students not. But think of the complexity, the number of cogs in that Swiss-made watch (laughs) that are all turning in conjunction with one another. Mm -hmm. So one of my concerns relates to this one-size-fits-all that if you're going to do studies in the social sciences, you need to pre-register. I don't think that's possible. But the other goes back to, and what I think is even more important here, is we need researcher degrees of freedom. And here, I'll throw a log on the fire, is the student in our class said, isn't making a decision based on your data unethical? I would argue, in many cases, that not examining the characteristics of your data and understanding the impacts it has on the outcomes is unethical. You have a responsibility as a scientist and a researcher to know every aspect of your data. What are the Mm -hmm. outliers? What are the distributions? Are there higher order interactions? Are there diagnostics? That it's unethical if you do not do those things. Because let's take a super simple example. Let's say that you have a treatment and a control and you have a dependent variable and you have biological sex and an interaction between biological sex and treatment condition. All right, a super simple two by two with a single continuous outcome that you pre-register and you put in your code and you upload your data and you run your code once and you get a significant interaction. That is doing everything that we're told to do in terms of the pre-registration. What if in your sample, because of random variability, you have two kids who are further away from the middle of the distribution than the other kids? They're outliers. And if you drop those two kids, your interaction goes away. Your significant interaction goes from significant to non-significant. In the pre-registration lens, you would not know that. Because you are inappropriately acting on the characteristics of your data. And you would claim a significant effect that may be attributable to 1% of your sample. So now where does the ethical issue lie? Is not knowing that those are there or knowing those are there and then acting upon them? And that example applies in so many things that we do throughout. Imagine I am doing some, who knows, factor analysis or some kind of structural equation model where I have an outcome variable that has five categories and based on the literature, make the decision to treat this in a robust full information, maximum likelihood kind of way. And when I actually get the data, what I find is that two of the categories of my variables are not even being used. So what do I do? Do I say, damn it, I pre-registered this, or am I allowed to audible and say, I really should switch to a categorical estimator right here? 
I firmly believe that you, A, you cannot anticipate all of these kinds of things. B, the decision should be in the hands of the researcher. And C, I accept that it might change the outcome of the study. Exactly. And it might change the outcome of the study in what is a more appropriate way. Mm -hmm. I think one of the problems in this whole issue is this overemphasis on the results of a single study. Mm -hmm. A meta-analyst views a study as a datum, one point Mm -hmm. in their sample of studies. Even if you make these expert-informed, subjective decisions to make a particular conclusion in a particular application, is that's just one pebble in the pile toward trying to build a cumulative science of understanding the complexities of the things that we study. So you're exactly right, is if I drop two outliers and my significant effect goes away, part of the fun of our day jobs is, was that a right decision or was that a wrong decision? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know. That's why what we do is so much fun. We don't know the truth as God sees it. We can only do our best, mm-hmm. right? Is one of those great compliments you get from my mom is, well, Patrick did his best. <laughs> I mean, it still sucks, but I did as uh-huh. well as I could have. <laughs> Thanks, mom. This is the very point is that we have to build a principled, expert-informed, cumulative science. I think we could build a framework, and we're not going to do it here, but I got to tell you, if you're quanti and out there in the world and are looking for a paper, I actually think a really important paper could be written that takes a thoughtful approach to the things that we're talking about here. Unlike our approach. Unlike our approach, which is all over Hell's Half Acre. And Greg, I'm sitting here looking at 75 minutes of recording and that this one is on my editing to-do list because you're currently working on another Have one. Fun. This is like a cat rodeo at this point. I'm being really serious is there's a paper to be written that I've already titled, which is In Defense of Researcher Degrees of Freedom. So let's think about some of the ways where these might come up in practice. Greg and I have been talking about some serendipitous ones. What if you have an outlier or something like that? What I find a little vexing is part of the anti-researcher degrees of freedom flies in the face of other things that we're being told to do to move our science forward, not the least of which is model comparison. Mm -hmm. You and I had an entire episode on model comparison and about how the field is moving toward a systematic building of comparative models that are laid out in an a priori and confirmative way. You have model A and then you expand it to model B and you do a likelihood ratio test and compare it to model C and you compare it to model D and we do a principled model comparison approach. How is that not data-driven? If we are going to evaluate likelihood ratio tests to identify the optimally fitting model with respect to a set of competing models, I would think that a hard core anti-researcher degree of freedom person would say, dude, you tell me what your model is, you write your code for that, you give me the data and I'll run it and give you the estimates back, and that's what you're going to base your discussion section on, that flies in the face of a model comparison Mm -hmm. strategy. Model comparison is allowing the data to adjudicate a problem. A problem that theory has not been able to answer, right? Theory leads you to put four models on the table, 
day to help you to make a decision among those. And once you make a choice among those models, then you get inside and you have 18 different hypothesis tests associated with the parameters inside of that model. What I have said before, I will say again, guess what? The p-values in there don't mean jack. Anytime you have this setup of contingencies that lead you one way or the other, whether it's a model comparison to choosing a model and then looking at the significance of the relations inside the model, or making a decision to use an unpooled variance t-test rather than a pooled variance t-test based on some a priori Levine's test. Anytime you have preliminary tests followed by the other tests of significance, the p-values associated with those tests are already wanked. Just a quick editorial comment. Greg is addicted to Ted Lasso, which is the only possible explanation I can come up with for why he just used that word. For those of you not familiar with the concept... The Premier League with Arsenal heading on the road to Newcastle, where 17-year-old Matthew Kerr will make his debut. Roy, what do you think he'll do today? I don't know. He's 17. He'll probably have chips for dinner and a wank before bed. Apologies for the language. A, I firmly believe that it's our responsibility to set up these competing hypotheses and allow the data to inform the choices and then go on and see whether or not those choices hold up. But I think we have to maybe not take ourselves too seriously when it comes to assuming that the results that we hold in our hand at the end of everything are somehow a truth that has a God-assigned numerical value to it in the form of a p-value. It just ain't so. And that a single study is going to adjudicate a research question. It's a pebble. It's a pebble in a pile. If I am working on mediating mechanisms of parental risk on child development and I do a series of likelihood ratio tests and I identify an optimal fitting model based on those formal chi-square tests to compare the different models and I conclude model C is the optimal fitting model with respect to the data that we observed and I present that to the literature, that's not done. That should then contribute to the next study and the next study and the next study. We're building this cumulative science. We have that model comparison, but also the notion of things like measurement and scoring, right? As I've Mm. related this anecdote on an earlier episode, but very briefly, a colleague of mine in the department came to me. She was working on a manifest variable path model and it was completely wonky. She was getting what was a very strong predictor and was getting an opposite effect that was highly significant. Mm -hmm. And she just wanted to puzzle through it with me. And so I sat down and worked with it a bit. And it was wonky. It was wonky as heck. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And Mm -hmm. in the data file she gave me, she just happened to have the item level data that went into the mean scores for the scales. Mm -hmm. I, in one line of code, did a principal components analysis. I just want to see what the eigenvalues are on these items that went into the scales and what the data requested for how it wanted to gather together in terms of the factors and the loadings had absolutely no relation (laughs) to what the scale scores were. Mm -hmm. Some of the items went into a predictor, some items went into the mediator, and some went into the outcome. The principal components wanted all of those items on one component. (laughs) 
What it turned out is she was not really able to do anything in that situation because the scoring rubric was defined by the test developers, Mm -hmm. but it was inconsistent with what her sample was. But if I didn't do that, we wouldn't know. And if I hadn't done that, she might well have said, oh, I use no researcher degrees of freedom and I found a negative effect and that's what I'm going to present to the world. One of my favorite movies, and it's long and oh my golly, it can be boring, but it's called The Right Stuff. Mm. And there's a line in there that I love where the capsule is orbiting the Earth and there's a problem with it and they're trying to decide whether to tell the astronaut the problem or not. And one of the people on the ground says, you have to tell them Mm -hmm. the status of their aircraft. Mm -hmm. And that principal components I felt like is... What is the status of the aircraft? This is a characteristic of your data. Now, what you do with that mm-hmm. is a different issue entirely. But to say that doing an EFA on your items as part of the analysis is unethical makes my eye twitch. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's an EFA or initial CFA or whatever, if we go back to our discussions about validity and construct validity and the idea that validity is an ongoing process, it's not something that is established, done, thank you very much, it's all been taken care of, it is often very context-dependent, and a new study is a new context, potentially. I really think we have to remain sufficiently agile to be able to accommodate those kinds of things. So what does it start to distill down to some core features? In my eyes, at least, one is the opportunistic use of researcher degrees of freedom unambiguously has contributed to the replication crisis. Mm -hmm. And unchecked can lead to inflated type 1 errors, inflated effect size, and all of that. That is unambiguously true and something that we need to pay attention to. For me, Mm -hmm. that's point one. Point two, I feel like we are traumatizing a generation of students By telling Mm -hmm. them to never look at your data. Yeah. And you and I both have had students in our class when we've talked about things like diagnostics or outliers or transformations or alternative methods of estimation or modification indices or principal components analysis or anything like that. They start to shiver. Yeah. (laughs) I have had students routinely say, we can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. You shouldn't do that. We have got to quit traumatizing our kids in not feeling comfortable looking at their data and making expert informed decisions. Now, what's the pairing of that? How do we do that without getting back to pre-replication crisis days is I think it's a pairing of two things that have come up already, one a little bit more than the other. We have to have trust and we have to have transparency Hmm. because Everything that Greg and I are talking about, you have to communicate to the reader. If you picked five variables as predictors based on some external criterion, you have to report that. You can't pretend as if those were the five that you predicted. If you drop three outliers, you have Mm -hmm. to report that. Do you remember in season one, way, way back when we were even more horrible than we are now at doing this? I can't even (laughs) bear to go back and listen to some of those. You had an amazing eight or 10 minutes on the research Mm. lab notebook. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. Eight or 10 minutes (laughs) in a 50 minute episode. (laughs) 
I dragged over nine of those minutes and deleted them. <laughs> Can you remind us what your view was on that research notebook and how that plays a role in how we currently do research, given what we're talking about right now? So I don't remember exactly what I said, but I know how I feel. Our science is not unlike other sciences in the sense that we have to remain sufficiently flexible to be able to accommodate things that arise that we couldn't possibly have anticipated. That doesn't mean we don't have a code of conduct as scientists. We absolutely do. But I think we have to remain flexible. So what do we do then? What do we do with these researcher degrees of freedom? How do we handle them? And to me, it's embodied in the notion of a lab notebook. And what I probably said before was I think back to the way that I was taught about science through elementary school and junior high and high school, and then even as an undergraduate where one of my majors was chemistry. Our lab notebook was the place where we told it all, where we had the transparency that you are describing. We describe what we did according to the plans, right? Here is the plan. Here's what we did. Here's the, oh crap, this is what happened. Here's the decision we made. And that lab notebook tells the story. That lab notebook is what someone else looks at and maybe nods in agreement or maybe shakes their head in disagreement and says, I don't think you should have done that. Fine. That is completely your prerogative to disagree with the decisions that were made. It's my responsibility to tell you what those decisions were and why I made them. So for me, when we talk about pre-registration or we talk about researcher degrees of freedom, for me, I almost think about it as the lab notebook or maybe even an appendix that we fill out, right? So we do a study. Question one. How did you handle the decision to treat outliers? Here is what our initial plan was. Here's what we actually did. Here's why we deviated from that plan. This is what happened. Great. All right. Question two, how did you handle non-normality in the data? Blah, 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 blah. So for me, the lab notebook is where you lay out all of the decisions that you made. And I think a lot of the conversations that we have had essentially give us a good start at an architecture for some of the things that we want to mention. Now, does that mean that maybe instead of going into every study, having to sign in blood some particular agreement about something that in the end becomes impractical? No, maybe what it means is that we go into a study with a certain amount of, <laughs> of, of trust as a scientist and on the back end, what we have to do is have some version of an appendix, have some disclosure statement, not just holding up your Boy Scout fingers and saying, I solemnly swear that I behave properly, but rather saying, these are all the issues that one typically treats. This is how we dealt with them. And here are some other issues that arose along the way. So I think the gist of the lab notebook is exactly in the spirit of what you talked about, being completely transparent. It does not keep people from cheating. It does not keep people from from not telling you about things that they did. We will never be able to prevent that. But I would much rather that we take this pendulum that has sort of swung from, hey, whatever, man, over to the other side where it's like every single thing needs to be anticipated and maybe nudge that back somewhere toward the middle where we're aware of these problems and that we are helping researchers create a framework to think about them, to disclose them, 
to put them out there for their community to judge. I think you just laid an outline for some quanti person out there to write a pretty important paper, which is what is a modern version of a research notebook? Imagine my buddy's study of the intervention at the school level and the timing, kid in grade in school and univariate growth and bivariate growth. And how do you develop a research notebook that captures the complexity of what he's doing? So point one is what does that look like in this day and age, right? You would sharpen your quill and dip it into the inkwell. <laughs> you didn't notice because you just flew right through it. But to date you, you talked about junior high. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, we're yeah, talking unfiltered camels and no seatbelts as you drank your leaded water <laughs> at that point. What does a modern research notebook look like? And then the big one yeah. for me is, can we then use that to stop traumatizing our next generation of researchers? Mm -hmm. How do we work this into a training program where we mm -hmm. are thoughtful, we are careful, we are thorough? And we are transparent in what we do. I have a longitudinal SEM class and I have a set of repeated measures and I walk through an example. We estimate a random intercept only and we get the likelihood. Then we add a linear component and we do a likelihood ratio test. Then we add a curvilinear component and we do another likelihood ratio test. Then we impose homoscedasticity and we do another likely ratio test. And we determine that the optimal functional form for a set of repeated measures is a linear trajectory with homoscedastic residuals. And a student will raise their hand and say, but you're p-hacking. Why isn't this p-hacking? We have to just take a deep breath and say the replication crisis is real. The opportunistic use of researcher degrees of freedom is real, but we need to walk back to the middle of the room and say, how do we do this in a thoughtful and beneficial way that enhances the accumulation of knowledge as each study is added to the prior? So somebody out there write that paper because Greg and I are too lazy. <laughs> Today's running day, so I'm not going to do that. On that note, I wish everybody out there all the best. Take care and look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks, everyone. We always appreciate your time. And somebody write that paper. It needs to be written and it's not going to be done by us. Absolutely. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get additional audio files to play on your front porch to terrify trick-or-treaters. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, a product that we regret to inform you will always arrive precisely on time, week after week, regardless of global supply chain disruptions. Quantitude has been brought to you by mandatory skills tests following each university-required online training session, dedicated to preserving your self-esteem following the incorrect endorsement of a true-false item by presenting the message, and we're not making this up, that was really close! Can you try again? By finally being able to return to the office. Zoom meetings are so much more engaging and productive after a long commute through rush hour traffic. And by necessary legislation, reminding you that it is now legal in 23 states to slap anyone who says, well, 
all models are wrong, but some are useful. Visit feelfreetoslapthemhardandrepeatedly.org to see if this option is available in your area. This is most definitely not NPR.